are. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated this morning. My name is George Olmstead. I am one of the pastors here on staff, and I'm thankful to have the opportunity to share the Word of God with you this morning. When is the last time that you had an eye exam? Good question. I just had my last eye exam just a little over three weeks ago. And can I tell you, I do not enjoy going to the eye doctor. Not at all. It's not fun. It's not enjoyable. I'm the person that if I just start to bring my finger towards my eye like I'm doing right now, that my eyes will begin to water. So we're not going to do that. Uh, anytime something gets close to my eyes, I just I, I, I can't stand it. People say, have you ever tried context? Absolutely not. That would be miserable, and that would just be something I don't want to endure every day. But we understand that going to the eye doctor, getting an eye exam is super important. As a matter of fact, eye care experts, they recommend that we should have our eyes checked every one to three years, depending on age or risk factors and, and physical condition. As a matter of fact, regular eye exams are important. Why? Because... Uh, we are told that the experts estimate that one in four school-age children have an eye problem that could cause permanent vision loss if left untreated. So I'm thankful that when I went to my eye exam this past, uh, these last few weeks ago, uh, I was told that, hey, there's a deeper issue behind your eyes. So going to the examination actually helped uh, me learn something about myself, that my eyes, I thought they, they're good, I don't really have a struggle seeing these glasses, they're really for driving uh, at night, and, uh, but as you're getting older, they're getting a little bit more foggy, and so they gave me a little bit stronger prescription and said, hey, let's run some more tests. Now, I would have never known what was wrong with my eyes or that there was even a problem or an issue unless I would have went to the eye doctor and received that eye exam, and I'm very thankful that I did. Now, however, there's even more of a vital kind of eye exam that we should be regularly undertaking. This exam is not an assessment of one's eyesight. No, as a matter of fact, it's an evaluation of one's standing before God. So through the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that we find in Luke chapter 18, that's where we'll be this morning. If you want to turn to Luke chapter 18 in your Bibles, you want to pull it out up on your phone, however, or you want to follow with us on the screen, whatever is most comfortable with you. But we see that Jesus describes two such eye exams. One led to God's judgment, while the other led to peace and forgiveness. So as we turn to Luke and giving you a few minutes to turn or a few seconds to turn there, we look this morning at the parable of the two eye exams. Luke 18:9 reads this, also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. So let's set the scene very quickly. Jesus is using a parable to teach those who have been following him and asking questions. So quick reminder, what's a parable? A parable is an earthly story. It has a heavenly meaning. And Jesus used these earthly situations uh, to bring out a heavenly truth or a heavenly principle. And here was his intention. To allow those whom he taught to have a clearer understanding of who God is and what God desired from those who follow him. So here in this scene, we have Jesus. He's teaching a group of people who... The Bible says, trusted in themselves for righteousness and despised others. 
And it's very important that we understand that Jesus, although he's teaching a group of people, he is narrow in, narrow end on, and he is focused on the group in this crowd known as the Pharisees. And he speaks this parable directly to them. So Jesus used this opportunity to do a few things. He simply proclaimed the gospel and he explained what the gospel is. He took this moment amongst the crowd to explain how eternal life was inherited and how one must gain forgiveness through justification. He gave two eye exams here. And he did this, and he, he wanted to do this to accomplish this so that, so that one could understand how to be justified. So as we continue to read in verse 10, Jesus goes on, he says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So that first person that Jesus tells us about, we're very familiar. Grant's been walking through the book of Mark, and we've ran into the Pharisees quite a bit. But let us just remind ourselves very quickly. A Pharisee was part of the ruling class in Israel. They were mostly middle-class businessmen, and therefore they were in contact with just the everyday common man. The Pharisee were held in much higher esteem by the everyday man than their counterparts known as the Sadducees. Now listen, the Pharisees were a minority in the Sanhedrin. They held a minority number of positions as priests, but here's the deal. They controlled the decision-making of the Sanhedrin far more than the Sadducees did. You want to know why? Because they had the support of the people. Religiously, the Pharisees, they accepted the Word of God as the inspired Word of God. They gave equal authority, though, to oral tradition And they attempted to defend this position by saying it went all the way back to Moses. Now, we understand very clearly that adding unto the word of God in Deuteronomy 4, that that is unacceptable. It's forbidden, as a matter of fact. But the Pharisees, they sought to strictly obey these traditions along with the Old Testament. Now, although they added to it, they did remain true to God's word in reference to certain other important doctrines. Unlike their counterparts, the Sadducees, here's what the Pharisees believed. They did believe that God controls all things. Yet he allows decisions made by individuals to also affect life's course. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in the afterlife. They believed in the existence of angels and demons. But throughout the Gospels, we see the Pharisees do what? They continuously oppose Jesus. And what are they doing? They're attempting to trick and to tempt him into breaking the law or to catch him in sin. Now, before we get too down on the Pharisees, which we aren't fans of, we understand, we need to understand that they did actually believe that God was God. And it was taught that Messiah would come. They believed that. Unfortunately, they missed the fact that Jesus, even in this setting, was that promised Messiah. And so we see that Jesus is speaking directly to the ones who have missed the fact that he is the one who they've been waiting for. We have the Pharisee. But the second person that Jesus mentions is the tax collector. Now, in that culture then, tax collectors were looked down upon. We spent a little bit of time talking about different tax collectors over the last few months, but they were hated, they were despised, they were ridiculed by everyone in society. They were Jews working for the Roman government and were seen as traitors and crooks by their own people. 
it was common knowledge that this is what the tax collectors would do. They would collect more tax than required. That's not going to make you a fan of anyone, right? They would do that. They would keep all this extra for themselves. And because of this practice, they were normally very well to do. And that just caused others to loathe them even more. And because the tax collectors, they collected, because they did this in this way, they created this schism between the classes, and really, they didn't have a lot of friends to hang out with. They had to kind of create their own subculture of just the tax collectors hanging out together because no one wanted to be around them. Well, the group that looked down upon the tax collectors more than anyone is whom? The Pharisees. And that makes perfect sense. The Pharisees kept every law to the letter while the tax collectors did what? They broke every law they could get away with. <coughs> Excuse me. The Pharisees were welcomed by the crowds and the tax collectors were what? They were shunned. So the Pharisees, they felt obligated in their self-righteousness to let others know just how wretched and sinful these tax collectors were. As a matter of fact, if you remember the story of Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, the, if you remember the song, Zacchaeus, the, the wee little man, short in stature. Jesus actually is passing by and he sees Jesus, I mean, Zacchaeus up in the sycamore tree. And as he looks at Zacchaeus, he says, come down, I'm going to your house today. At this moment in the story of Zacchaeus, the Pharisees are just mind blown. How in the world is this proclaimed Messiah going to go sit down with some of the most wretched person and people in society? He's going to go to the house and have dinner with him? Jesus, you've got to be kidding me. But when they look at this, we understand that the Pharisees were bewildered. How in the world can you do that? The two people in this story were picked intentionally in this parable Jesus intentionally picks the Pharisee and the tax collector as the two main characters. The crowd he was addressing will be drawn into the story, listening with great expectation. Because here's why. They wanted to know who Jesus would say was right in the eyes of the Lord. They are on the steps just leaning in. Oh, Jesus, tell us who's right in the eyes of the Lord. As a matter of fact, here's the understanding we have of the two people who went to the temple. That we have two people who went to the temple to pray. The Pharisee, who others would expect and even watch as they prayed, and then there's the tax collector, who wasn't even welcomed in the temple, and he was kind of put into the same uh, category as the prostitute. So this is the context we're looking at. A Pharisee, a tax collector. Total opposites. But then Jesus continues to tell the story of the parable as he looks and we look at verses 11 through 13. We see that there are two prayers. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We have two men here with two distinctly different prayers. We have the prayer of the Pharisee, 
Jesus describes the prayer of the Pharisee in a way that is very easy for us to understand. It was a prayer of outward boasting, full of self-righteousness, and full of self-glorification. As a matter of fact, if you want to break it down, the prayer was, I focused. If you listen in that verse, you hear the word I mentioned five times as the Pharisee prays. I thank you that I am not like the others. I fast twice a week. I tithe on everything that I have or I have gained. The prayer was I-focused. The prayer was not only I-focused, the prayer was a show. The Pharisee could not wait to let everyone know how well he had kept the law that week. Man, he is excited to get to the temple. He's excited to pray. Not because he's coming before a holy, righteous God, because people are going to be watching. And man, he is getting ready. And here's what he does. He couldn't wait to be the center of attention. Listen, he was going to put on his best prayer voice. Have you ever been around others who pray a little differently than they talk? It happens. But he was going to put on that good prayer voice. He was going to put his best prayer posture forward. Now, listen, it was, it was, it was instructed to lift your hands while you pray. That's fine. He was doing what he's been taught to do. But he was going to make sure that his hands were lifted the highest that his voice was going to be the loudest, his posture was going to be a little bit better than everybody else. And he was going to proclaim to those who would listen how great he art. Not how great God is, but how great he was. The prayer was eye-focused. The prayer was a show. The prayer was works-motivated. Jesus is explaining this parable, and we see that the Pharisee was motivated to list all that he had done in the name of God. His motivation, excuse me, was self-righteousness. He was motivated by the working in and through of himself to be accepted by God. He believed his works were going to be what justified him in the eyes of God. So we have a Pharisee who is about himself, who is attempted to carry out the laws of God, who thinks that by doing that, his self-righteousness, everything that he does, is going to find him acceptable in the eyes of the Lord. But yet we see next Jesus moves on to the prayer of the tax collector. And continuing with the parable, we see the, the second prayer, and, and the tax collector, and his, his, everything about him is different. Jesus makes this very easy to understand. I love that about Jesus. He doesn't want to make it complicated. He's just going to give you the truth. He's going to wrap it in grace. He's going to say, listen, it's here for you. And here's what he says about the tax collector. The tax collector's prayer was full of humility. It was full of confession. It was full of repentance. How, did we, how do we find the tax collector? He was standing afar off. He would not so as much raise his eyes to the heaven. He instead would beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's very interesting. This language is only found one other time in the New Testament. And a man in public in that culture would never beat their breast. It was actually a cry and a plea uh, from a woman that would beat their breast to say, oh, God, help me. So we see that 
not only is he standing afar off and he's not looking up to heaven, but he's, he's beating his breast. It's unorthodox of a, of a type of prayer and posture. But here's what we learn about his prayer, that it was God-focused. The tax collector had realized this, his sinful ways, and he also understood that, that those ways, and he was to seek that only that one bridge, that gap, I'm sorry, that bridge that could gap between himself and what he deserves. At the end of the day, the tax collector is saying this, I want to be before the holy God, the God of mercy, the God of grace, and the God of forgiveness. He realizes he is in need of forgiveness and he cannot anything to do within himself to earn it. The prayer was God-focused. But it also, the prayer was not a show. The tax collector would not even enter into the main temple. He stands from the outer room, from anyone who might be able to identify him. And he especially stays afar from the Pharisee who calls him out. He does not want to be anywhere in the vicinity where the Pharisee could continue to use him as an example. Instead, he bows his eyes, he humbles himself before the Almighty God, he beats his chest, and he confesses. He confesses his shame, his guilt, and his sin. He pours out his heart to God. He has no intention to bring attention to himself. He has no desire to be the focal point of this prayer. He simply desires one thing, mercy for his sinfulness. But we also see this, that it was a God-focused prayer. It definitely wasn't a show. It was a prayer that was faith-motivated through repentance. This tackler, he does this. He placed his faith in the only one who could grant that mercy and forgiveness. The tax collector, he understood that he had nothing good or holy to offer to God. But he did not let that stop him from calling out to the one who promised to forgive. The one who promised to show mercy. The one who promised to be the giver of life. As a matter of fact, the tax collector showed great faith by putting himself out there for the world to condemn, but more importantly, for the Lord to forgive. I want you to hear that one more time. The tax collector showed great faith by putting himself out there for the world to condemn, but more importantly, for the Lord to forgive. Listen this morning, the world cannot wait to condemn those who follow Christ. But our rescue in that is that we are not here to please the world. We are here to please the God who forgives. The one who has changed our lives. The one who said in spite of everything that you've done, guess what? I still love you, and I will forgive you. Oh, man. I remember what it was like to come to the realization that I was in need of a Savior, and that Jesus was Him. And so, as we look at this, we see two people, two prayers, but then there's two thoughts of the heart that is involved in this parable. We see the thoughts of the heart through the prayers of these men. Now listen, these are two thoughts that still prevail today. And so you may be sitting here, George, I, I, I know this story. And you know, it's a really cool parable. But do you know what we're witnessing? We are witnessing a Jesus share the gospel. 
We are witnessing Jesus take His wisdom, His understanding, and saying, this is how one is justified. He's not letting people stay in the dark, whether it be a self-righteous Pharisee or a heartbroken tax collector. He is being the example of how we are to share our faith and share the gospel. Here are the thoughts that are prevailing in these prayers. God will let me in because of who I am. God will have a relationship with me because of who I am. The Pharisees were actually good people. Did a lot of good moral things. They truly believed in their hearts that they were, uh, that they were, what they were doing and the way they were living and the good they were carrying out was going to earn them that acceptance into God's kingdom. They acknowledged that God as the creator of the universe, they believed the word of God was the authority in life. They believed their correction of others was justified through their self-righteousness. Doesn't this sound a lot like the world today? But before we get too quick to jump there, doesn't it sound a little bit like the American church today? You know, there are many who acknowledge the Lord and believe His Word is true. They're okay with pointing out others' sins and faults. But they too believe heaven awaits them due to the following thought. God will let me in because of who I am. And man, my good just, it just has to outweigh that bad. Or there's no way that God could, that God wouldn't let me in. I mean, look at all I do. Look at all the religious things I do. Look at all the good I do for the community. Look what I do for the poor. Look what I do for the needy. And the list goes on. In just a moment, we're going to address through Scripture how that thought process is not biblical. And just importantly, it's a lie from the enemy that some in the world have bought into. And man, we want to help them be rescued by the one who has the truth. The other thought is found with a tax collector. As he realized his sinfulness, God will let me in. God will have a relationship with me because of who he is. Man, he realized he needed that mercy of God. He understood that there was not any good in him and that his sinfulness had separated him from the Father. He realized the only way to heaven was through the forgiveness of God. Now understand this. Jesus is telling this parable in the midst of of Pharisees. He's calling a spade a spade. He's mixing truth with grace perfectly as he can. And he is attempting to show the Pharisees that their self-righteousness is not what will justify them before the Father. Folks, we don't want to miss this. We don't want to fall into the camp of self-righteousness. We want to fall into the truth of grace. As Jesus comes to the close of the parable in verse 14, he finishes it with this statement. Read with me. I'll tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Man, we have seen two people. We've seen two prayers, two thoughts. Now listen, you and I who have had the privilege of being raised in the church, be raised in a Christian environment to, to hear the truth, to hear this parable over and over and over again, we realize very quickly that 
Who was justified? The tax collector. But man, if you were in that crowd that day, when Jesus was telling this parable, you would have heard a huge gasp of disbelief and disagreement from nearly everyone there. You would hear cries of heresy, blasphemy. What are you talking about? There's no way. That's why Jesus is speaking directly to the Pharisees. He knows their heart. Now remember earlier in the sermon when we expounded upon the Pharisee, we learned they were accepted by the people as the moral and religious leaders. They were seen in the eyes of the people as near perfect and held up on a pedestal. So when Jesus declared it was the humble, sinful, repentant tax collector that would be justified and exalted, you could just feel that tension and accusations being hurled upon Jesus. The tax collector, though, he's the one who understood the Scripture. Isaiah 64, 6, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. You see, although those Pharisees, they may have been able to keep those man-made traditions, they may have been able to fool the eyes of those around them, but when it came to loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving their neighbor as themselves, listen, they failed and they sinned in carrying out what God has commanded. Even in this parable, did you catch it? We see the Pharisee do this. He looks down upon the tax collector with a heart that despises him. All those good works, according to the world, and man-made tradition, as well as keeping of the law given by God, were all for naught. Folks, it's important that we do not fall into the trap of self-righteousness. What stopped the Pharisee from being justified was the heart. The belief that they could actually gain favor in the eyes of God due to their efforts. We're about to see that our efforts are in vain. And all we need to be accepted and to find favor in the eyes of God is this. Simply the blood of Jesus. The atoning sacrifice of the perfect one. The one without sin. We have taken a break from Mark. But where did we leave? Where did Pastor Grant leave us in Mark last Sunday. Jesus being nailed and crucified to the cross. So why was what was it for? Why did Jesus go to that extent? We see that played out here in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. He had to go to the cross so that sins of men could be forgiven and we could be justified before the Father. When we think about the tax collector, in this story, he realized this. It wasn't through anything that he was going to do that would forgive his sins and make him right before God. It was going to have to be this, the mercy of the Father bestowed upon him through the sacrifice of the Son. The one justified is the one who humbles himself 
and admits and repents of his sin and asks forgiveness of that sin and places their faith and trust in the Savior Jesus Christ to accomplish that justification. George, how do you know it's that simple to be justified? Now, it wasn't simple for Christ, but for you and I, he's made it pretty simple. How do we know that? Well, I'm glad you asked this morning. But on the screen, we've placed some scriptures. And I do this for two parts. One, to explain how one is justified. But also to help equip and encourage you as believers this morning. That as Jesus shared the truth and what it meant to be justified, that as you and I come into conversations with others who have not yet received Christ as Savior, that we have a guideline, that we have scriptures that we go to. And one is this parable. But others that can explain why one is in need of being forgiven. And then how one can be forgiven. If you've been a believer for any length of time, this may not be new to you. And that's awesome. But maybe you're new to the faith and you're saying, how can I help lead others through scripture to know the God who saved me and changed me? How can I have the gospel conversation? Maybe you need a refresher this morning. But this on the screen, can help you with that. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes into the Father but through me. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one, Romans 3, 10 tells us. So we understand that Jesus is the only way. The Pharisee and the tax collector were on different, uh, different aspects of Romans 3, 10, on different ends of the spectrum. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. So there was no righteousness that the, that the Pharisee had that could help him, and there's no righteousness that the tax collector had that could help him. Then Romans 3.23 tells us all of sin comes short of the glory of God. So, so there's no one who has not sinned. We've all done that, which causes separation from God. And then Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What an amazing verse. The, the despair of separation from God. Listen, because you sin, your payment is death. Guess what? We're all going to die. Good news for you this morning. But at the end of the day, we don't have to die without any hope. We can be spiritually restored, renewed, redeemed. Because God desires to provide an eternal life through those who place their trust in him through Christ Jesus. And then Romans 5, 8, one of my first verses in all the world. I love it. But God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, when you're having that gospel conversation with somebody, you're going to run into this question. Well, Surely God can't forgive me of all the things I've done. There's no way a God would forgive me of that. I have done some awful things. I've been in those conversations. You know what I can point him to is Romans 5, 8 and just say, listen, there is nothing you can do that God will not forgive. He'll forgive you. You know why? Because that's why his son went to the cross. Romans 10, 9, and 13, how is one justified that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God had raised him from the dead, you will be saved? For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, uh, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who can call upon him. I love that. Listen, I don't care what background you came from, what nationality you are, What's in your past? What's in your future? Listen, God is ready to forgive. And you can be justified. Just like the Pharisees, if they would have listened to Christ, could be justified as well. 
Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I am glad that I did not have to boast in my salvation because of me, because I would be the farthest thing from it. But I can boast in God and the fact that he saved a sinner just like me. This morning we see a man who's considered religious, looked at by the people of this world as moral and good. He goes to church, he ties, he does good things, but he's not the one who is justified. He's not the one who's forgiven of his sin, made right in the eyes of the Father. And unfortunately, our churches and our society, is, they're filled with many people just like this who really believe that because of what they do in the name of the Lord, they're going to be in heaven one day. They believe, they believe it is what they are doing that will earn them that place. And that may not be you this morning. You have truly repented and given your life to Christ. Praise the Lord. But if you've been wrestling or searching or seeking, and maybe this is where you're at, like, I've been trying to do it on my own, can I just give you a way to take a deep breath and sigh of relief and just let you know you can't? But God can. As a matter of fact, I want to close with this illustration this morning. After hearing the gospel explained, people often say, there's nothing I can do to deserve it. That's too easy. People object to the idea that God gives unmerited favor so freely to unworthy sinners. Many find it difficult to trust the God who offers salvation as a free gift. So Bible teacher G. Campbell Morgan told of a coal miner who came to him and said this, I would give anything to believe that God would forgive my sins, but I cannot believe that he will forgive them if I just ask him. It just seems too cheap. Morgan said, my dear friend, have you been working today? He replied, yes, I was down in the mine." Morgan then says, how did you get out of the pit? Did you pay? The miner says, of course not. I just got into the cage and was pulled to the top. Morgan says, were, were you not afraid to entrust yourself to that cage? Was it not too cheap? Oh, no, said the miner. It was cheap for me, but it cost the company a lot of money to sink that shaft. Suddenly the truth struck him. What cost him nothing? Salvation had not come cheap to God. The miner had never thought of the great price God paid to send his son so he could rescue fallen humanity. Now he realized that all anyone had to do was to get into the cage by faith. Because of God's grace, salvation is a free gift. But to receive it, we must stop trying to pay for it and start trusting what Christ has done on the cross. It's free, but it's not cheap. So how do we apply this as we leave this morning? Very simple. Justified by Christ alone. Hey, listen, nothing you can do to earn it. Nothing you can do, you can't be religious enough. Only God can justify the sinner. Self-righteousness can be experienced by both the believer and the non-believer. Hey, can I encourage you this morning? Self-righteousness creeps into the heart of the believer when we begin to make look at others, believers like this, whether they're, well, we look at non-believers and say, well, they're, they're too far gone, there's no hope. Well, that's not the truth of the gospel. Or we look at other believers and we do this. Man, why can't they just get their act together? I mean, come on, don't you read the Bible? Can't you figure this? Like, it's not that difficult. Instead of going to the believer who's struggling and saying, hey, can I, can I, help you? Can I walk with you? Can I disciple you? Can I show you in the Word of God how you can grow in this faith? How you can grow in your walk with Christ? Because you know what? I don't want to see you struggling. I don't want to see you 
thinking that it's too tough. Listen, here at Fellowship, we, we, we really desire to be a church that, that grows deep and reach out, both. And we want to disciple those in their faith. If we're really going to be a church like that, then listen, we've got to go reach the ones within our own body and those who are saved in our community and say, hey, let's walk together. Let's be disciplers. And then last, the parable is the example of this. Share the gospel. Don't be afraid. And God, in his sovereignty, he saved you and he's wanting to save others. Man, can we just go out and share that gospel in any everyday conversation? This morning we have looked at the eye exam. Jesus gave to the Pharisees. And I would suggest this morning we take that same eye exam. Then on your screen, this is what we finally leave with. Self-righteousness will never satisfy the Lord. And it will never satisfy the hearts of men. Only the gift of grace and forgiveness provided through Jesus, received by the humble, repentant heart, will satisfy the heart of God and provide redemption for the soul of man. Let's pray.